0: This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.
1: Kia ora. You're about to listen to another episode of The End of History, brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society – and hosted by me, Shannon Burns, the End of History is all about socialist and working class culture, history, and politics. And each month, it features at least one special guest, music reviews, and more. Please enjoy. Kia ora koutou, ngā mihi mahana, Kia koutou katoa. A warm welcome to the End of History, a radio show slash podcast, brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. Corshannon Burns Tenne. i I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society, and it's my privilege to present this episode, in which I talk with a special guest, play a couple of songs, recommend a couple of resources, and more. But first, the Canterbury Socialist Society, or the CSS, is a socialist organisation based in Ōtautahi Christchurch. The CSS presents regular educational and social events, supports political actions in Autotahi and elsewhere, publishes the biannual magazine The Commonweal and is affiliated to the Aotearoa New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies. You can visit socialistsocieties.org.nz to learn more about and join the CSS or another socialist society local to you. You can also send an email to CanterburySocialistSociety at gmail.com. I'll have a little bit more to say about the CSS at the end of this episode. For now, it's my pleasure to introduce Nadia Abu-Shanab. Nadia is based in Pornicky, Wellington. She'll say this herself in just a moment, but Nadia is Palestinian. She's an activist and a union organiser with a background in early childhood education And I called Nadia about a week ago to discuss the situation in Palestine now and historically. Nadia is a down-to-earth and very generous interviewee, so I know you'll get a lot out of this conversation, whatever your understanding of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Let's be honest, this conversation necessarily involves talk of genocide, so please prepare yourself for that. Two quick notes – Nadia uses the Arabic pronunciation of Gaza, Reza, I'm sure I'm butchering that, uh, throughout this interview, and she's also provided some additional information, which you can find in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much, Nadia, for your thoughts and time. I'll be back in just over an hour with music, reviews and more. So I am joined by my guest, Nadia Abu-Shanoub, thank you. Nadia, can you please start by introducing yourself to listeners? Kia ora, Shannon.
2: So, ko Nadia Um My name is Nadia Shana. I am a Palestinian, a mum, a union organiser, and I am based in Pornikki with my husband and our two daughters.
1: Lovely. Thank you. I remember encountering you maybe through fight back stuff back in the day, so it feels like a long time ago now, Um, but cool to hear that you're an organiser now. Am I right in thinking you were also like an early childhood teacher?
2: Yeah, that's right. So I've moved between like working as a teacher and then doing various different sort of political
1: organising type jobs,
2: like working for Auckland Action Against Poverty and looking at different
1: unions. So, yeah. Awesome. So you mentioned that you're Palestinian Kiwi, um, possibly more to it than that. Can you tell me a bit about, a bit more about your connection to Palestine? You know, have you been there? How do you connect to it? What's your experience?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting getting asked this question because I think the way that I learn about Palestine is kind of the... The way that I wish everybody learned about Palestine, if that makes sense. Like, you know, for me growing up, so my dad is from Palestine and mm-hmm. he became a refugee in England when he was about maybe 17 or 18 in the 70s. And he got refugee status, settled down there, ended up having a child with my mum who is Irish mm-hmm. and English. And yeah, so how we learned about Palestine was like, first of all, just we would, we would go over there. So I've been to Palestine about six times and yeah, meet my family, spending time with people, getting to know the food. And then kind of as I was growing up, wrapping in new layers of information and new layers of information that I was able to kind of understand at different points, so you know, the kind of living specter of occupation, kind of like watching how that impacted my family's lives, watching occupation forces um, at checkpoints and things like that when I'd be visiting my family, hearing stories, like sitting on the lap of family members, hearing mm. stories about different elements of what had happened. And so it was kind of this layering in process. But the first thing for me wasn't like understanding Palestine to be an issue or a political thing. It was just like Palestine is this cool place where yeah. my family lives, and the food is good, you know. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of which is kind of like I think when we peel away like all the layers of dehumanisation and stuff, it's sort of how it should be for everyone, you know. I think that crucially, most people have been miseducated on this issue, and so most people's introduction to the issue, if you live in the West, is you're like indoctrinated into a really dehumanising narrative about yes. Palestinians. So I kind of when when you you know, when you ask me the question, I also think, like, what was the first thing you heard about Palestine,
1: yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, because, like, do you know what it was? No, I don't really, I think, so I can tell you now that my, we had a, a PLO scarf in my house growing up, and that's because my family came to Altiro from Northern Ireland, um, and so there was a sort of sense of, solidarity. Um, there's lots of murals in Belfast that r- make reference to Palestine, but I didn't know anything about it, even until quite recently, to be honest. Like, I wouldn't have said that I felt confident to have an, a really strong opinion about stuff, except knowing that, you know, there was some sort of similarity there or some, yeah. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. And I think, and um, love the fact that your
2: Irish family had a PLO after <laughs> that. Perfect. And thinking about it from the perspective of you being Irish, I think you probably would have had a slightly, you might have had a slightly different angle to it running through your family life as well. So that's cool. But yeah, I think for most people hearing about it over here, I mean, that lack of confidence sounds really familiar right now because I think a lot of people are still feeling that way, right? They're like sort of seeing something go on, but yeah, but it becomes uh, hard to wade into.
1: You make such a good point because initially, like the question that I sort of put to you in preparing for this Was like What was your understanding Of Palestine growing up And of course it would be like This is a home A place that's home And has family And is actually quite normal And not as just like A political problem necessarily So you make a really good point
2: Yeah but it is interesting Because like I did have to layer Those elements on Like And, and I think that's actually Quite it We're finding that now so I talk to our children about it And mm. I talk to my sister about it Is like how do you explain concepts like occupation and oppression and like, you know, dispossession and these kind of things to young children, because they're actually like, I mean, for a young child, that's quite a grave thing to kind of reckon with and quite a heavy thing. And so, you know, um, I remember being like eight and being in Palestine. And I, by this point I had worked out that the Israeli, like Israeli occupation was bad and like, you know what Israelis were doing was terrible and I was saying something about Israelis to my cousin and we were having a conversation just little kids mm. and she goes you know the whole issue started with the British right <laughs> <laughs> and so and then I was kind of like hmm and so then she was just giving me this little you know um introduction to like the longer history of Palestine and I mm. learned about it at eight years old from my eight-year-old cousin so you know it's it's kind of like it's yeah, they're hard, they're hard concepts for a child to get a grip on, but you feel it, you feel it in your yes, core, right?
1: So definitely. yeah. So that's a, a really um, suitable kind of transition into what I wanted to ask you next, which is, you know, I've seen a lot of signs at some of the, you know, anti-genocide, pro-Palestinian rallies that have been happening recently, and they talk about decolonizing Palestine with kind of immediate reference to Israel, but obviously, there's a, a longer kind of colonial relationship there that you referenced just before between the UK and Palestine. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: So I think the like the context is that a lot of people will say Palestine and that kind of area, you know, it have lots of different groups of people move through it. And that's absolutely true. You know, In some ways, we've been talking about it recently and I I had some conversations with Tina and Nasa around this and, you know, I was saying that colonization and the colonial project didn't begin in Palestine, but uh, I hope it's bloody going to end there. (laughs) And her focato on that was like, well, actually, it kind of did begin in Palestine and she's right, you know, like if we look at the history of like the Crusades and, you know, European sort of like religious forays into Mm. the Middle East, you know, there's like a really long history of this region being super contested. But up until World War One, you know, Palestine was under Ottoman, like Turkish rule. And when the World War kind of came to a close, you know that those European powers were, were carving up the map as they did. Mm. And at that point, the British invaded and as victors, it then became a British possession. And, I think no, just one thing I want to note as well here that it's kind of it's useful to know that at that point in sort of 1917, 1918, when the British were taking control of, of um, historical Palestine, um, there was a New Zealand connection as well because New Zealand was part of that invading force and there were New Zealand troops and there were Australian troops that actually... Mm-hmm. Um, after the war had finished committed massacres inside Palestinian villages and one of those massacres was called the Fivafan Massacre um, and it's definitely something that's not talked about when we talk about the I history of the I didn't know that. I definitely didn't know no,
1: that. No. No, so that
2: was in 19, 1918 and it was a, it was a village and basically yeah, 50, about 50 villages they reckon it could have been more were, were massacred. It was all the men in the village were taken to a space um, killed men and boys actually, and their boys were thrown down wells and yeah, so that yeah that's, um, yeah, it's just it's interesting. New Zealanders love the New Zealand connection love the New Zealand connection. yeah um, but yeah so then what sort of happened then was at this at the same time as all this was occurring, the British were also promising Palestine to the Jewish people and to the Zionist project
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think just to explain what Zionism is Zionism is that idea in like an exclusive Jewish homeland. And what it's interesting to note here, there's two things I want to share about that, that time because people might have heard of something called the Balfour um, Declaration. And so Arthur Balfour, you know, sent a letter saying, yep, we'll promise, you know, Palestine to the Jewish people to the Zionist project as a homeland. for for Jews. And, you know, the inference in that as well, of course, is that, you know, this be uh, at the expense of the Palestinian native population. And that was a very, you know, that's like a very colonial move, you know, why think about the people that are already there. So I think the other interesting thing is that one thing that I kind of read about was that the... Opposition to declaration came from the only Jewish member of the British cabinet at that time, who was called Sir Edwin Montagu, and he was he. What he said was actually that, the, at that time, that the majority of British Jews were opposed to this idea of Zionism. You know, they had different ideas, yeah. and they they saw Zionism as actually quite an anti-Semitic. You know, they saw the anti-Semitic risk to Zionism. Right, that you can't live here in Europe. You have to yes, be yeah. somewhere else. We have to kind of move you out of here. And so, you know, and it's worth noting that Arthur Valfour as well, who signed the Valfour Declaration, you know, in 1905, he was the Prime Minister, and he had been responsible for anti-Semitic legislation, you know, and stopping Jews from fleeing persecution in Russia to come to Britain. And so when we understand that this person was actually, that did this, was an anti-Semite, I think that tells us a lot about what the motivation underneath the British handing this over, what? And it was about the strategic importance of the Middle East. Yes. And what I want to say about that, just to link to now, is that, you know, a couple of things that the British identified was obviously oil, the oil richness of the Middle East, not specifically Palestine, but the oil richness of that geographical region. And also the Suez Canal. Mm -hmm. And why is that relevant now? Well, you know, I think people were sort of stuck in this deep state of questioning to see that a genocide is occurring in Palestine. we have got 30,000 people dead. Um, Yemeni Houthis are, you know, doing what they're doing, which I think is a true act of love and solidarity with the Palestinian people. They're boarding Israeli ships. They're taking the kind of action that member states should be taking in a genocide, which is, you know action to deter the state from doing what it's doing. Yep. And what, what's the response to what has been happening in Yemen? The response has been to bomb Yemen. And we've and, got
1: another New Zealand connection yes. there recently. So, and know. we do.
2: So we've, we've sent Africa um, and the DF staff off probably to make like cups of tea or something, to be <laughs> honest. Like I think it's a token sort of gesture to, to nod to our connection to these imperialist nations. But it, it implicates us deeply. And, you know, but let, let's be clear. The issue here, again, is the Suez Canal. Like, yeah. this is about, this is the calculation that British colonialism, the colonial system has. This area is strategically important. And strategic assets are always important for imperialist powers. The most important thing, you know, above human life. Absolutely. Um, so, so, yeah, I... It, and then you see as well the way that the Zionist movement as a settler-colonial as a movement was so heavily influenced by the British. And something that my only client said that I loved was that, you know, in her recent book, Doppelganger, she talks a lot about, you know, Zionism and Israel, anti-Semitism. And one of the things that she notes is that part of the outrage of certain people within the Zionist movement about British kind of opposition to stuff or when when Western powers kind of weigh in Australia, New Zealand, settler colonial nations sort of say, you know, you you shouldn't be doing this or timidly kind of suggest that Israel is out of line, they say, well, it's anti-Semitic for you to say this because you were allowed to do this. And I think there's an interesting point in that, right? Like that they're kind of saying, look, we, we recognize that settler colonialism is a thing we want our ability to do it, and opposition to that is anti-Semitism. So yeah, I'm kind of going down into other questions. And, no, and, but that's, and, and, a, that's a and really interesting. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. We might come back to that. Um, yes, a very interesting position that it morally, I guess, that it requires. You know, states like Aotearoa to get into. Yeah, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit. I think for some people. When you first are learning a bit about Palestine, getting your head around the geography of the state and how that's changed over time can be a little bit difficult. For me, I kind of, again, only recently was able to draw some comparisons between um, what happened in Northern Ireland, where you've got a kind of partition going on, and then also, obviously, in India, literally like, you know, the subcontinent, where you've got these kind of populations cut up with different kind of forces in between and I'm sort of talking more about the present state of things but can you kind of sketch for me a little bit about you know what are the key locations that we're talking about when we talk about the Palestinian state or you know Israeli settlements and how has that changed over time?
2: Oh, um, Okay that's a um, massive, think massive about... question. <laughs> no 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 it, it's, a, it's a great question and I've been thinking about how we did an education session recently and I, I wanted to talk about this geography because I, I think it's, you know, we're talking a lot about FESA right now and sometimes I think that, you know, I can tell that people are struggling to understand the distinctions between FESA and the West Bank or, mm-hmm. um, you know, or even the fact that there are Palestinians who live within Israel proper. But I think the first thing I want to say, and then I'm going to go back a little bit just to explain a little bit about that changing of the map yep. that we saw um, over the last 75 years, the, the kind of initial point that I want to make is we, we'll hear a little bit in the international kind of, um, you'll hear the international community and people in the news talking about things, about settlements and Israeli settlers. And I guess my thinking on that is that the whole of Israel is,
1: is a settlement.
2: Is a settlement, It's a settler yeah. colony. Every single Palestinian. You know every single Israeli town or city is on the ruins of a Palestinian village or town, and you know, like Tel Aviv historically was a town called Yaffa. You often meet Palestinians who found um, who are descendants from dispossessed uh, descendants from Yaffa, and so I think we've come into now this space, and, and it was actually an Israeli friend of mine, an anti-Zionist Israeli friend of mine, who pointed that out to me because we were kind of talking about you know, cutting settlement products. And she was like, well, yeah, that's everything produced in Israel is essentially a settlement product. You mm-hmm. know, you're just, you're just going back to the, into that settlement process. And I think that's something critical for people to understand is that some of the best articulation is that you'll hear from that sort of founders of the Zionist state. They, they acknowledged that they were like, you know, yeah, every city you see is, is founded on the ruins of, of the Palestinian village, basically. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so what what occurred in 1948 when, sort of 1947, 1948, when Israel was established after the Second World War, you know, the experience of Palestinians then, at that point, Palestinians were 86% of the population. Mm. And um, in 1917, they were 86% of the population, sorry. And what had been happening between 1917, in 1948, is that waves of Jewish migration had come through. And that was more uh, was more informal, so Jews were setting up what you might have said of as like kibbutz, so these kind of communal ways of living off the land. And the Zionist idea was rising in popularity, but it wasn't until 1948 that a true kind of mass migration program and a mass displacement program, those two things come together, right, yep. truly was set in motion with the establishment of Israel. And what happened at that point was at, at that time, and I'm going to use a quantum here, which people might not be familiar with, but I think if I go through it, people will understand. So in 1948, Jewish land ownership in mandatory Palestine was 1.7 million dunams. And one dunam is 100, a 1,000 a square meters. Yeah. But at that time, so they owned less than 6% of the land the area designated for the Jewish State was 1.5 million dunnans. So what the UN was effectively saying to scientists was go seize an additional 13.3 dunnans that you don't own from those who do from the largely agricultural people who existed in those areas. And so, you know, at that time, what, what happened was there were five, about 500 and something Palestinian villages and towns that were destroyed, that were raised, And the, the process was often massacre. It was people leaving under fire and they were pushed off. But at that point, that there was this idea that kind of half the land, roughly, would be for Israel. And so some people in some of those areas were not displaced. So my family were not displaced in 1948 because they happened to fall inside the, that line that has been drawn, mm. which was the Palestinian land, if that makes sense. Yeah. But for the Palestinians who were displaced, a lot of them ended up in Gaza. So eighty percent of people who lived in Gaza are descendants of about you know a couple of hundred villages within historic Palestine, 1948, where they lived. And the Palestinians at that time, you know, there was a professional class, there was a middle class, but for the most part, people lived off the land. So you're people who are actually like peasants, basically, and have a deep relationship with the land, but Mm. it's it's livelihood and it's it's life. It's the olive groves that they planted. It's the, if you're in Yasa, it's the, you know, it's the orange trees that people lived off and sold and traded in. And so, you know, you have this area that became completely decimated and people could not return. You know, people stuck in Gaza talked about, I took people from Gaza who say, you know, we could see in Gaza. My grandparents, my parents could see the home that they had in the village that is now the Israeli town of Ashkelon. They could see it from Gaza, and they could see the old houses that they lived in. Um, and people often talk about the people of Gaza as refugees, but I mean... Uh, other Palestinians have said to me that they reject that because we never had a closure. They were never resettled anywhere. They were just yes. displaced within Gaza and then kind of kept in this in this limbo of living in refugee camps, dispossessed, kind of within their own land. So, yeah. So it, it was. I think even I'm only now reckoning with what happened in 1948 because because my family was displaced in 1948, and I had heard those stories, and I have heard a lot, and I know a lot about settlements in the West Bank to my family. But I think it just what's happening in Gaza now is really enlivening the memory of what we call Al Nakba, nineteen forty eight our catastrophe yes. because it is alive when you up the descendants of the people who were shoved and massacred from both villages, who made it out, who survived, who ended up in Gaza in refugee camps, some of them giving birth in refugee camps, telling their children, telling their grandchildren their memories of Al Nakba and how they had to walk. During Al-Nakba, many of the Palestinians looked on foot under fire. And they are those their grandchildren are experiencing the same thing now in herself. And saying, I remember my grandmother saying to me to keep her children, she had to keep her children caught when she, during Al-Nakba. So as not to lose them on the walk. And she said, I remember that as I was walking down. Mm-hmm. so the memory of what happened in 1948 we've never had closure like we've never had any closure because what happened to us has been denied yes. and um a mythology has been created So anyway i, I could talk a lot more about that but it changes shape what you wanted to know was you know what what were those areas that kind of came through and so it's such a complex geography because of the layers of stuff that have been kind of the amount of lines that have <laughs> laid over us because you have this area called the West Bank. You have this area called the Hezbollah. As far as Palestinians are concerned, you know, we are all one and the same. And then you have Israel proper, which has continued to expand during this time well beyond, you know, where it was at in 1948. So in 1967, you know, there was another war which they used to grab more land further into the West Bank. And then there is a settlement project within the area that is supposed to form the Palestinian state and so in the West Bank where my family lives, you know I think it's something like I forget the statistic now, I was reading it recently but a huge portion of that land has settlements upon it and Palestinians cannot use it I mean that's certainly some of our family land is in that situation so yeah and (laughs) that's that's yeah how do I it's just we call it Swiss cheese. Like we say that the West Bank looks yeah. like Swiss cheese because where there are settlements, there are settler-only roads, and if you're Palestinian, you can't travel down them. So even when within the area that's supposed to be sort of like this Palestinian area, there is this yeah this just this, this presence. And then also within Israel, and this is where things get complicated, and people find it hard to get their heads around There are Palestinians with Israeli citizenship. Jesus. So there were some on surviving Palestinian villages within Israel. Now, if you live in Israel and you're of Palestinian descent and you live in one of those Palestinian villages, your village will not be resourced with the same, you know, it will not be resourced in the same way that, yeah. you know, we, we see this here, right? You know, that low socioeconomic area. It's a little bit like a parallel like that, but it's more of an apartheid, right? So you've yeah. got 50 plus laws that discriminate against you. You might not have ambulances that serve your area you might not have the same levels of funding for your schools, all that kind of stuff. And so there are kind of three categories of Palestinians. Well, there are four, actually. There are Palestinians in Gaza who have been living under siege and there are settlers left in Hesla in 2004. Then you've got the West Bank. You've got Palestinians within Israel. You've got Palestinians within East Jerusalem who also have a set of different rights. Yeah. And then you have the biggest portion of Palestinians is actually in the diaspora because so many people got dispossessed yep. in 1948 and many of them went to the Arab countries. So, you know, when you hear phrases like from the river to the sea, it's actually about an articulation of the geography of Palestinian oppression and dispossession be- being complete within that area.
0: Yes, because the matrix
2: that falls over us and divides us, but actually there are Palestinians in all those places, and many who do not have the right to return to their land. So, I'm uh, sorry, I'm, that might no, have. I need to set it down, Pat, a little bit, explaining that with a bit more clarity, but I think, visually, I think, look I, it up. You
1: do, yeah, yeah. It, all of this can be looked up. You did a really fantastic job of explaining that, and yeah, that was a, a different sort of framing. I know that that particular phrase from the river to the sea is, you know, apparently controversial and, you know, some people believe it to be calling for, you know, the end to an Israeli state, but the way that you've framed it, and that may or may not be the case for some people who use the phrase, but the way that you're kind of, it sounds to me talking about it, is that it, it is the way to bring together all the different experiences that Palestinians have had in a really complex environment. Yeah. Well,
2: from the river to the sea, Palestinians will be free. You know, there is an impulse for self determination, whether you're a Palestinian who lives in a village inside as a 1948 you know, so you know, Israel, or whether you're in the West Bank uh, living under the boot of military occupation, or whether right now you're a Palestinian in Russia, mm. you know, and um, those are. Uh, Experiences of domination and oppression are all different, but they're all common in common because yes. we we are all either second class citizens or in the Bantustans or in the whatever it may be because we are Palestinian and this state is here as a Jewish only state. Yes, it's here at our expense. We're not supposed to be included in the state, and that's the, the unique thing about the Israeli settler colonial project as well because. They never wanted us to be in it. Like yeah. it wasn't like they wanted us to assimilate and yes, like if yeah, we just yeah. spoke their language and stuff like that, it would be okay. No, we're not wanted. We we, we are meant to be expunged. That is the, the project
1: at, at its core, you know? Yeah. You really, I mean, you put it so simply, it's, it's a really clear um, and confronting truth.
2: Yeah, and I think it's becoming a lot clearer to us now. You know, like in week one of after you know, maybe we'll talk about this more. But in week one after October seventh, you know, we 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 knew what was going to happen, and we knew that they would use this as an opportunity for ethnic cleansing. Like it was never going to be about a military military strategy or a war with Hamas. It's not about that. It is about actually expelling this became an opportunity for Israeli raising to continue a process of ethnic cleansing. Like the the genocide is beside the ethnic cleansing. You know, what the message being sent to us is, is there is no life for you here. And that was the message that was very clearly sent to Palestinians in those villages where the land was taken as well. It was made very clear, you know, the minute they left, they tried to walk past, like back across the land As some of them had to So some of them went to Gaza And they found that it was unlivable Because even then, Gaza there was not enough resources for people For the population that had arrived there So some of them tried to walk back to Jordan Across the, the land that had been there And there was a shoot-to-kill policy mm. It's always been made very clear to us that we are not wanted
1: I am aware that you know probably it's quite difficult to for people to hear this, but it must be difficult also for you to to have to talk about this kind of stuff. So I really appreciate you doing that. I wondered if you could tell me. Then you kind of transitioned a wee bit in that previous answer. What was um, Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation like? You know, in the first instance. What has that been like? What is Hamas for people who are kind of confused?
2: Cool. So I think the first thing that I want to say is, you know, Palestinian resistance has a long history and it, it's not just Hamas. Mm. But, um, you know, what what's interesting is that we've essentially had to resist this whole time, I mean, even between 1917 and 1948, before the state was established, uh, Palestinians began to see these waves of Jewish migration. They understood what was occurring. And at that time, you know, in 1936, there was a, 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 a general strike to impact British colonial rule as, as a sign of resistance. You know, at different points in Palestinian history different movements have tried different tactics so you may have heard the phrase intifada which is like yeah we call the uprising and, and a whole of society uprising that everyone participates in and so the first intifada just around the time that I was I was born so 30 something years ago the first intifada was uh really characterized by mass strikes. you know because at that point there were Palestinians that was in Israel they were relying on some level of Palestinian labor. Yeah. Not so much now. They often bring in migrants from other countries um, to provide their cheap migrant labor. But yeah, general strike, mass participation, you know, what would probably be characterized by for lots of people prior to Hamas is the image of the, you know, the, the throwing of the stone. Yeah. And um, I'm I will always remember, you know, um, when you might have heard of Palestinian intellectual, you know, heavyweight, Edward Said, yeah. And he was terminally ill. And after that, you know, he traveled to Palestine and he threw a stone across the border to um, to Israel, you know, he was actually in Lebanon, sorry. And he, he did that and he kind of said, this was like a symbolic gesture of joy at the end of Israel's occupation of southern Lebanon. And so, yeah, Palestinian resistance, It has taken many forms. You know, there was the great march of return in Gaza in 2018 where, you know, tens of thousands of youth marched on the borders towards Israel, you know, in the act of wanting to return to those villages and and towns that they were dispossessed from. And, you know, in the words of Nordecai, they were shot like birds and there was no media on that great march of return, you know, which was a huge um, protest, a vibrant protest movement. So, Palestinian resistance has looked different at different points. I think what Hamas represented, so Hamas was founded in uh, 1986, 1987, and what Hamas represented was a lack of Palestinian faith in the negotiation process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Hamas is probably just best described, their politics best described as that sort of like Islamist politics. You know, the other element for Hamas was this rejection that through negotiations, Palestinians would get some kind of good deal. And so, and I'm not a supporter of Hamas, but, you know, if we look at the alternative, which is the Palestinian Authority, which govern in the West Bank, where there is there's been a, a decision that, we will, you know, use the diplomatic means and negotiate and blah, 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 and just wait for it to get better. And, you know, that year, last year, 2023 was the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza in 20 years. And things were getting markedly worse and the settlements have continued to expand and the human rights abuses have continued. And so... I don't really, you know. I think I think the the the, the questions around Palestinian resistance, you know, it's often like, what's the right form of resistance, or blah blah blah. But I think the message that Israel and probably the rest of the, the the Western sort of international, you know, the Western part of the international consensus have been saying to Palestinians is there is no valid form of resistance for you, and you know we have a saying that existing is resistance. Yeah. Which I think it fundamentally is, you know, for the Zionist yeah. Project. Because they talk about expelling from and expelling Palestinian resistance. And so when you see them committing genocide and murdering tens of thousands of people, it's to understand that what they're saying there is that we see you all as a form of resistance. Like we, we see your presence here. Yeah. as actually a form of resistance and, 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 and an agitation, because we don't feel safe, like we, we are supposed to have this secure Jewish state at your expense and the presence of you here continuing to live, which is a form of resistance, <laughs> is a problem for us. And so, yeah, it's taken many forms and I think Hamas is a product of the failures of the peace process and Palestinian kind of resignation with that.
1: I mean, I can, I can. It was a provocative question, really, to ask about Palestinian resistance, and then you know, to say what is Hamas, and I think some people, you know, are, are not aware of of the various other forms that Palestinian resistance has taken. And you said before, you know, that you know it's because you, these have been invisibilized. And even since October last year, we see these like really programmatic strategies of making sure that people don't get to see the kind of realities of of genocide, but do strategically get to see a lot about, you know, the bad Palestinians. And I'm kind of sympathetic to to what you're saying about Hamas as well. Like, if you would believe, you know, the kind of imperialist rhetoric around Northern Ireland, again, it's different, but you would kind of be forgiven for thinking that all resistance was the IRA and, and not anything else. So, yeah, I can understand.
2: Yeah, yes, yeah, def- I mean, definitely. And I, I think it's interesting to understand as well the way in which like even the cultural resistance that Palestinians kind of enact, you know, through our poetry or through dance or through artwork, you know, that's something that's been highly criminalized. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of political leadership and a lot of cultural leadership and cultural institutions have deliberately been cut off at the knees. I mean, and, and characterising it all as terrorism, it's just a classic move. Rather than engaging with the terms on which, you know, what is it that, that Palestinian, what, what, is the, what is the driver here for Palestinians? Is it, is it a genocidal intent? And I mean, I find it hard that, like, we, we've had that claim laid on us yeah. in this context, you know, with the facts as they are. But is it a genocidal intent or is it a will to live? And I would say, absolutely, it's a world to live. And, you know, it's just like we say, Māori never ceded sovereignty. But who would be happy living under occupation? Like, who would be happy living in the besieged center Like, what kind of future is that? It wasn't, it it isn't, you know, and Hasla was becoming and is, you know, an extremely unlivable place, even prior to what occurred, you know, um, Yeah, and it wasn't getting better. It was not getting better.
1: Yeah. So you've provided some really good context from, you know, prior to 1948, from 1948 and, you know, the Nakba and people saying, well, the Nakba never ended, it's carried right through. So it's been a continual process. What we've seen since October last year is not something that's come out of the blue. You said we knew what was going to happen as soon as things kicked off. But obviously this is a moment that has come to international attention in a way that maybe it hadn't for some time. So can you tell me like, what sort of happened in October of 2023 and what's sort of been happening since then? Yeah,
2: so I think, you know, I said that thing, I wanted, I did want to contextualise stuff and, you know, the, the fact that 2023 has been a really deadly year for Palestinians and obviously, you know, the newly formed government in Israel is like, the hard line, you know, it's a real shame because there have been at different points different political tendencies in Israel. But the fact that we need to reckon with now is that, you know, the right wing, the fascists, the sort of settler parties are, you know, the majority you know, they 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 were able to form a majority government and that represents something about the internal political state of Israel as well. And what happens when you, you you kind of build your nation on, on, on mythology and dehumanization mm. is that I think fascism is a natural endpoint. It's not the start point, too, but I, I think increasingly, like, you know, you, you look at early, early Zionist thinking, it's a, it's a little bit, <laughs> it's, got, it's got a few more strands to it, whereas now it's just really clear. So, yeah, so in October, I, I mean, I think the thing that we all kind of recognize whether we we knew a lot about the issue or not, was that October 7th was completely unexpected. It was completely unexpected to everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, even to Palestinians that were waking up in the West Bank on that day. You know, for that to have happened, it was a completely unexpected thing. And I don't think anyone really expected that Hamas was capable of this. And and the reason being is that, you know, Versa is probably one of the most surveilled, meter by meter areas on yeah. earth. And, you know, you'll hear Israel talk all the time about, you know, security and it's unparalleled military kind of strength and it's, it's, it's kind of advanced weaponry and these advanced technologies and things like that. And so I think amongst the shock and horror in Greece and grief in Israel at what had happened and in, in around the world, you know, witnessing you know, some pretty horrific grave stuff it really revealed those kind of myths because I think there was a group of Israelis that were like, in, in liberal Israelis as well, who were like, we can live with a caged population just kilometers away from us. And it's okay because we've got a really good fence. Like we've got a really good, we've you no, know, really, we do. We've got the steel, you know, tons and tons of steel, and we spent a lot of money on it. And, you know, if we build the walls high enough, we won't have to look at the problem. And at that time, you know, for Hamas to break through.
1: Yeah.
2: To break through the barricade and to enter into, you know, uh, Israeli settlements. And, yeah, I mean, it was just, it. I think it shook Israeli society to the core because this was supposed to be impossible. Yes. And, You know, and and I think that there was also a belief that at some point, you know, the Palestinian question might go away. And so I think this has triggered something really deep, you know, like it's triggered something deep. And, you know, we know also, like if we're political people, right, we understand that when a shock happens, a political shock happens, then people can act quickly on other agendas. You know, it's something we've seen before after natural disasters and things. It's like when people end up, emotional shock, uh, you know, that can be exploited. And so immediately, immediately, the signal for ed- genocide w- was sent from senior Israeli government officials in no uncertain terms. They stated their absolute intent in front of the world, on television, and set about doing it. Yep. And they were also given a blank do that. Because if you remember the week following October 7th, it was all you know, I mean we didn't mean our statements that, oh, Israel needs to protect human rights now and oh, we do want to cease to you know, how many months in. But at this point during October all you were here was, we must condemn Hamas, Even as the Palestinian body count accelerated exponentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had heard about time, you know, the massacres and what was, what, you know, the, the propaganda machine as well. Like, the Israeli officials understand that that, that anti-Palestinian racism is life. It's a seed they planted the world over. So, you know, you only need to, um, you know, you only need to water it a little bit. Mm. And so it, it was just like, oh, well, these people are barbaric. They, they can't be salvaged. They're all Hamas. They're all terrorists. Let's couple things together. So there was but the headed baby story, you know, which yeah. was, you know, and the, the sort of the denying the blowing up of, of the hospital and then proceeding to blow up, you know, pretty much every single hospital in the Gaza Strip. And, you know, it's interesting that that any Palestinian claim about anything, you know, that had happened, the kind of questioned and to the eighth degree, nth degree sort of when you hear it in Western media, but... Israeli claims like the beheaded baby stuff were reported, were just reported in in international media. And everyone had, yeah, and everyone had an immediate comment on how, on how horrific it was to behead babies and how inhumane and how barbaric. I mean, if you think about this, it was like, this is unacceptable, barbaric, savagery, everything, everything. And 11,500 dead Palestinian children later, many of whom have been beheaded and dismembered. Just with sophisticated weapons technology, yeah. and, and and is there something some more humane somehow more humane in that? In that, I'm not sure. But like you know, that we don't we still don't see that language being used for that Israel. You know, it is terrorism. This is terrorism. Yeah. The Israeli occupation forces perform terrorism, and it is a genocidal campaign. The way that they are framing this campaign, and I think it's really important that. Um, people understand this, because it's being talked about as a war yes. and a military campaign to eliminate Hamas, but and it's about freeing hostages. But notice that the whole time Hamas have been talking about wanting to negotiate to release the hostages. And Netanyahu have not been interested. They are not interested. The hostages family want to negotiate. Yeah. And the Israeli government are not interested in the process of negotiation, they believe that there is some kind of military solution to this, which is unfathomable. Mm. Because, you know, they say we want to destroy Hamas. They will never destroy Hamas. They're talking about destroying Palestinian resistance evermore. What they really mean is we will flatten it. Like we will commit a genocide. Yeah? Well,
1: as you say, and if, yeah. if existence is resistance, then that's what they think it's going to take to To get rid of Palestinian resistance. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And well, one of the things they said as well was that Hamas will never rule it. And so, again, you know, we'll make sure of that. And you can take out the leadership of Hamas, but you think that after what they've done to people, that there isn't still going to be a Palestinian instinct for, like, and I'm not talking about revenge here, but an instinct for some kind of life beyond. Being crammed into, you know, uh, an open air prison—like absolutely not, you know—and so they're trying to do something militarily, which is fundamentally impossible. And I think even, you know, nations like New Zealand are, are kind of diplomatically aware that there is no military solution to this this issue. This ends in a negotiated. Solution that is the only way, and it needs to be a negotiated solution, which in which Palestinians are afforded basic fucking human rights.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, what have you noticed about the reaction to what's going on this genocide? From I guess, like what I'm interested in asking about is the difference in the reaction between um, states and just populations of people around the world who seem to be seeing quite clearly that what's going on is wrong, seeing through some of the myths, as you've suggested, that have been built up in some of the propaganda, not yet being listened to by their states or or their elected officials. But what have you noticed about, yeah, the response and what do you think, you know, I said I would ask you about the International Court of Justice case, you're welcome to talk about that if you think that's a useful thing to talk about. It seems like a sort of bit of a nothing affair, really. But yeah, I'm just interested to know what you think about what people have been responding to the situation like and how they how they could respond.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the way that people, I, I think the way that the world has responded is is by showing moral leadership. And the moral leadership that our COVID world leaders so plainly fail to do, and that goes back to the question of, you know, why did the British they you know, want to this Israel and hand over sort of telephone to to Zionists in the first place? Well, the food canal, you know, like yeah. this comes back to strategic interests, not moral that's right or humanitarian ones. And so it just exposes that. It just exposes that. And I'm I'm not Worried about that Like I've known about that My whole life I think for some people It's a reckoning It's a grieving process Do you mean our governments Don't stand for human rights And what do you mean That New Zealand doesn't have Independent foreign policy That we can't be proud of But I mean To me It it, it all makes It all makes perfect sense And it's just You know Playing the hit Basically Like This is This is what they're going to do And so The task for us Is really clear we need to turn the, I think, that, uh, like almost like an instinctive, emotive, very human, solidarity, grief, horror, shock, and sometimes even like a kind of perhaps, I think, I think that people are really tuteling around that question of what what we do. Mm. And, you know, this is the moment for us to show leadership collectively you know, the South African kind of act of solidarity is, you know, trying something through these supposed um, mechanisms that are supposed to uphold, you know, justice and, and human rights and, and it, these universal human rights that we supposedly have w- was an act of solidarity inspired by movement politics.
3: Yeah.
2: Because, you know, anti-apartheid movement was about global solidarity. And I think we need all, all irons on the fire, all leaders, you know the diplomatic ones, the consumer ones, the um, the economic, the visibility of protest, everything, because we have to take the feeling of this moment and translate it into a political pressure capable of making this cost enough for Israel. Like, that was the fundamentals of the anti-apartheid movement mm. um, in terms of South Africa. The words are not going to cut it. Nice. I mean, Israel has showed us that, you know. Like, t- you know, people in the Israeli government were saying after the ICJ, ICJ case, Hague schmade. Like, no international court's going to fucking tell us what to do. Like, yeah. you know, so they don't, they're just thumbing their noses at it. I think there's still some significance when we see, like, you know, New Zealand, Australia, Canada calling for a ceasefire today is it enough? Absolutely not. But, you know, like the wheels are starting to turn and every single bit of that is because of the concerted actions that we've taken. I do still think that we need to, you know, really continue to organize them into, you know, because like a boycott is good, right? Like an individual boycott, you don't buy the Thomas or you don't buy yeah. a HP laptop or whatever, that's good. But when we use our boycott together, that's a different story. And that's the kind of thing that makes it hurt. It makes it cost. We have to understand that there are interests in this. There are people profiting off it. Um, There are people who profit off the perpetuation of all wars. And so I think we really need to start unpicking all those systems and all those links and using the power that we have of being the many to kind of channel into divesting, kind of cutting away those links that make us complicit, whether they're, you know, diplomatic links, whether they're economic links to Israel. Because ultimately, words are not going to deter Israel from this project, you know, that it's got going on. The genocidal project is is in full swing, even though they're on trial right now for genocide. Yeah. And they got told to report back in a month on, you know, stopping the genociding. And what are they doing? Amping it up. Yeah. Um, And I think that's because they sent, their time to be able to do this is coming to a close. They are a pariah state. The regime cannot continue as it will. They are, will be an international pariah state in the eyes of the people of the world. And they've already lost the case. Yeah. Like, they've already lost the genocide case in the eyes of the people. So there is no coming back from that. So they're just digging in. It's like,
3: yeah.
2: but I, I, I think as a movement now, the time has come to be like, no, no, no. we're not doing this, we're not doing because of 2030, I am not doing that, Yeah, like now is the time to really make it count exactly. and I think that the, we're, we're capable, like right? we're
1: sustaining our
2: actions now and it's, yeah. So it's, I think um, that's
1: the thing Is is, as you say converting the quite human initial reaction to what you're seeing into an organised yeah, a movement. I know if I'm really honest at times, you know, we can go along to the rallies every Saturday they are here in Ototahi. And at times it feels a little bit like uh, you're just turning up for the local Palestinian community. I'm not really sure like what what we're doing about it. So it is hard to not feel disheartened at times, but you're so right. It, it's really in digging further into the Organising of that. Do you have any suggestions for people who maybe are feeling a bit fatigued, which is is an awful kind of reality for some people? Uh, but yeah, any any suggestions for maybe empowering ways to go about making that stand?
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think look, going to the rallies. The rallies are an incredible way to show solidarity, to create visibility, and that's one vital part of the movement. But I want to be really straight up about this and just be honest because you have a political audience here. It's not going to be enough. Mm-hmm. And we all know that. These people organizing others, you know, we all know that. But we 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 are at the moment a little bit beholden to being in a cycle of organizing events to channel, to experience a collective capacity And I really believe in protest movements. So I'm not, I really believe in the visibility of protests. But where it becomes real is if you can bring it back into your workplace, into Mm -hmm. your community. I mean, these are the basic principles of of organising right now. You might not have a workplace where it's appropriate or you're not able to do that, but some of you will. You know, some of you will be the union delegate in your library, you know, and and so there's there are many things that can be done. You know, there's a a fantastic example of some union that, you know, the healthcare workers, Palestine have been organising a weekly vigil but I think we can start to kind of call on our institutions and we must call on our institutions and organisations the ones that kind of belong to us a little bit more, mm-hmm. the ones that you know we can win our battles in a little bit more whether it be city councils whether it be you know uh, unions, whether it be kind of faith-based organisations and institutions I think bringing the, those up because you're not just bringing individuals together yeah. At a protest or something, but you're actually going into, you're going back from the protest, back from the protest, back into your workplace on the Monday, or back into the even the soccer club that you're part of, and being like, "What can we do?" Because it, I think it's the moving of organisations yeah. together, not just individuals, that can create as a sort of sustained political pressure and those consequences as well. So if your if your union is able to say, for example, yeah, we're not going to use um, HP laptops anymore. Um, we're not going to, you know, you can think of a few other elements that, you know, are material, materially supporting Palestinians and, and, and the boycott movement, for example, that's really meaningful. And, and I think people are actually doing it. And, and for other people, it'll look different. They, they will have different strengths and different skills and different communities that they move in. But I think do the battle where you're fighting. Like, definitely make that trip to the town square to be part of that protest, but then also walk back out and think about something small scale that you can do with the communities that you have because that will engage people who won't go to the protest. Yeah. And it will engage other people in discussions. And that's the fundamental of organising. We're not just talking to people who already agree with us. Yeah. We have to bring over more people.
1: That's it. So I thought. We might start to wrap things up now, if that's okay. I don't want to keep you all night. Although I I, I do super appreciate your time and how incredibly knowledgeable and forthright you are. It's um, just been such a pleasure to talk to you. I guess, you know, I did say that or indicate that I'd ask you a question about what you might have to say to people who are afraid of, that that comeback of oh it's anti-semitic to be challenging Israel on this sort of stuff I mean you've kind of talked about it already it's something I've experienced in my workplace to be fair um so it is a a real sort of thing and and it does happen did you want to talk about that or do you feel like that's no I
2: do actually I do I do because you know I I I was talking to my husband about this and I I saw this question and I know that there are palestinians who sometimes feel challenged that we always have to respond to this and you know so often it's a distraction but I I had an offering that I wanted to make about about this question because you know when it comes to anti-Semitism I think it's really important you know that we learn about the history of anti-Semitism so for people listening to this podcast who are trying to learn about Palestine, you know, I think it's really important that we learn about the history of anti-Semitism, that we learn about the Holocaust, mm-hmm. and that we learn about other genocides. I really do. Like, And this is the pain he been dropping for me on this too recently, because, you know, I've, I'm lucky enough to have lots of Jewish friends. And I think one some people in the Palestine movement really say, don't worry about anti-Semitism, we're not anti-Semites. And I'm just not convinced by that position. You know, I think that we have to understand what anti-Semitism is. And I don't mean from, you know, people in the Jewish council who do claim that any kind of mention of Palestinian freedom is anti-Semitism. I mean from, you know, Jewish leftists and anti-Zionists who are, who, who have a very clear articulation of what anti-Semitism is. And the reason that I think we should be compelled to learn about the history of anti-Semitism is I think it tells us a lot about how genocides unfold. It yes. tells us a lot about dehumanisation. And, and I can tell people not just to learn about the history of the Holocaust, but also the history of the land that we're standing on, which is al and also the history of settler colonialism. Because for some of us, we learn about the Holocaust in the context of the Holocaust as the exception to the rule, how could this genocide ever happen? Genocide is a fundamental building block Yes. Of Europe, of so many of our nations, of our terror. you know, settler colonialism has genocide yeah. in its DNA. Yeah. So it's a totally normal thing. And but I think that, you know, that kind of idea of anti Semitism being the stupid system socialism. Like this needs to be investigated. Mm. Anti Semitic ideas lead us down a false path. And so I think to be really clear about not being anti-Semitic, you need to understand what anti-Semitism actually is and get educated on it. And also learn about Palestinian history and things as well. Because one thing that, you know, and I'm, I'm giving people a lot of tasks now, but I, I just think there's two things I want people to hold. I think it's really important to learn about Jewish history and learn about the truth of anti-Semitism because then you can stand confidently That's right. in the truth of not being an anti semite Because you understand What little kind of, because there are are small comments that actually have a real anti-Semitic undertone in them that flow through our society. And a lot of people don't know the history of those things. And so it's important to learn that. But also, by the same token, I would say we don't like to be qualified. You know, the Palestinian cause doesn't like to be qualified for Jewish voices. Like, I I really refute that. You know, I don't think people, you know, I've seen some people who were kind of, Wanting to come out around, you know, pro-Palestine stuff, and all they could do was kind of quote, um, progressive Jewish kind of voices. And I think, I think, you know, we, we have to understand that as Jewish dehumanization led to the Holocaust, the dehumanization of Palestinians is leading to a genocide today. Anti-Palestinian racism is the problem. And the antidote to Palestinian racism is that we need Palestinians to be able to articulate our story and to be trusted narrators on our own story. And so, yeah, I mean, if we can hold all those things, and I know that's a lot of homework for people, it's not all to be done in one night, but definitely, you know, read. I would totally recommend people read Naomi Klein's because I think she she covers it really well in terms of anti-Semitism and Israel. So you can learn a little bit about both or read Jewish progressive socialists and people like Judith Butler, but learn about what anti-Semitism is and also listen to Palestinian voices, I think both those elements are really important because we're kind of, our identities are mutually bound Mm. and, and implicated in this project. And, you know, a lot of Jews have a lot of good stuff to say about that, but I think it's worth learning a little bit more about what Jewish people have actually experienced and gone through because I think it helps us understand also some of the trauma has really yep. informed the Zionist project, and that's not to justify it because it doesn't. It's like it fucking doesn't. But I think if we want to make sense of it and understand the solutions, then we need to understand how that trauma has been weaponized and turned into a weapon of mass destruction and genocide. Yes. And um, yeah, so that's Michael Paddle on that. And sorry for taking no, you so much of no, your time, but amazing. I did
1: I did want to answer that one. Yeah, I really appreciate yeah. it, and I mean. You're right, there's homework to do. It'll be a slow burn, but there is a lot of stuff out there. I'm going to definitely chase up Doppelganger because I haven't read it. There's also for listeners, you know, some really good podcast episodes other than this one, Um, (laughs) but working class history, you know, have some good stuff about Israeli anti-Zionist projects um, as well. So totally worth it and from a class perspective as as well. So, yeah let's wrap things up now but I'd like to yeah, end right. end things with a little bit of hope and positivity so do you want to tell me you know first off is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't covered but secondly I'm trying to introduce this question at the end of all of my interviews where I say tell me about what um, your ideal world looks like or you know some version of that question. You said you don't want to be doing this um, same stuff in 2030. Where do you want to be in 2030? Can you tell me about that?
2: Well, it feels a really fucking long way right right now, but I think think that we're at the fork fork in the road where we either go one way or the other. But, you know, like, really, I, I think about a dignified life and I think about that in an international context as well because you know I'm interested in the politics of workers and the lives of working people and I think that more and more with the contradictions sharpening like they are and you know just to bear in mind that like what Israel is doing now in Palestine is kind of like with the sharpening inequalities existing over the all over the world like this is the kind of stuff that, that will wash up on the shores all over the world and, mm. and has already occurred in many places. Many people are experiencing those endings, be it through, you know, settler colonialism or through, you know, imminent sort of climate um, dispossession, you know. The ideal world for me is a world where, like, we live with some care and some dignity and the imperative which shape like, how we relate to each other are not about capital and imperial interests, but about the very human things that we need and that we have in common. And so I think that there is like there is this better future out there for us. And I think I really see it as well, especially for Jews and Palestinians. I think they like there's been a lot which has happened to our uh, two people. Mm. And if we can get to the other side of this in a way that is acknowledging, you know, of our right to be Mm. uh, as Palestinians, then there is something a lot more beautiful on that other side. And so I often think about like the simple things of, you know, what my grandparents were into, which was just like being with the land. Yep. And although we've done so much, we've desecrated the land so much and the land has been so hurt by everything that has happened, I think that there's still something in that that we all enjoy, right? It's like why our bodies enjoy being our own nature and it's for yeah. our mental health and stuff. Like we are still recognizing that we're part of a bigger ecosystem that's not even just about people. Like, yeah. you know, there are plants freaking feed us like how great is that you know so <laughs> yeah. it's just like it, it, it is kind of that vibe of like I want to be sitting under the apricot tree with a group of people from all over the world like cracking the fuck up about what a wild ride like we went through to get to this point and how much they fucking duped us yeah. and how much they exploited us and how much they convinced us that all these ill-fated ideas were going to get us somewhere better when actually, like, we already had all the answers right here, yep. like under the fucking tree. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah. if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, I love it. So yeah, no, that's an amazing answer. Thank you so much, Nadia. I I love it. If I'm next in Porniki, I'll come and we can have a have a drink under some tree. So yeah, yeah, preferably <laughs> uh, preferably one that can offer us. Some food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. This is a funny one. Did you have an opportunity to pick a song that you'd like me to play on the show?
2: I didn't, but I immediately had one. Definitely. Tracy Chapman talking about a revolution. Absolutely.
3: talking About the revolution, it sounds like a whisper. Don't you know how oh, talking about the revolution, it sounds like a whisper. While they're standing in the wilted lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment lines, sitting around waiting for a promotion, don't you know, they're talking about a revolution, it sounds like whisper, poor people are gonna rise up and get their share, poor people are gonna rise up and take what's that, don't you know you're In the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment lines, sitting around waiting for a promotion. Don't you know are talking about the revolution? It sounds like a whisper. And finally, the tables are starting to turn, We're talking about a revolution. Finally the tables are starting to turn Talking about a revolution Talking about a revolution talking about
1: a revolution. That was the nineteen eighty-eight song Talking about a revolution by Tracy Chapman, and my guest Nadia Abu-Shanab selected that song for you. Thank you, Nadia. Listeners, I'm going to urge you, please do share this episode of The End of History. Share it with your whenunga. Share it with people you know who don't know anything about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And if you can, please attend PSNA actions taking place near you. That's the Palestine Solidarity Network Aotearoa And you can visit psna.nz to learn more about that organisation. Do also take Nadia's advice and think about how else and where else you might be able to raise this issue. I know that I'll be doing that myself. Anyway, I've a wee bit more to include in this episode, so let's move on to resource reviews. And in fact, it's just the one, because while I've been consuming quite a lot of media lately, not all of it is suitable to review on this show – what I will be talking about is the 1722 novel Mole Flanders, which is attributed to the English writer, merchant and spy, Daniel Defoe. So the novel Mole Flanders is an apparent autobiography chronicling the life and exploits of Mole Flanders, which is an assumed name, but as readers we know no other. Moll is born in London in the late 1600s to a mother who was a convict in Newgate prison. Mole's mother pleads her belly, which is basically when a person condemned to death appeals for clemency on the grounds of their pregnancy. And so she is transported or sent away to British America and Mole is taken into foster care. What follows is an episodic or what we call a picaresque account of Mole's life and specifically her attempts to improve her own situation against the odds and against the treachery of others specifically men. By her own account, Moll is tricked into losing her innocence, forced into various marriages and dalliances and other morally and materially impossible situations, and as a result of all of these experiences, Moll ultimately turns to crime, and shortly before the end of the novel, Moll actually finds herself in Newgate Prison, sentenced to death. I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that Moll doesn't die, at least not before the novel ends. It is, of course, an autobiography. But more than that, the novel, according to Mole, is designed specifically to instruct against a life of crime, to detail the consequences of such a life. The irony, however, is that the novel doesn't really instruct against so much as rationalise a life of crime All the circumstances considered. What I mean by that is that Mole Flanders, the novel, demonstrates why a woman, with few means, would turn to crime to survive and how, having done so, that woman or that person could become acclimatised to the decisions and tasks that such a life requires and hardened to the effects of one's own actions on others. And that, I think, is an extremely progressive theme for a novel written in the 1700s. I didn't expect to enjoy Mulflanders Flanders as much as I did – though the diction was a bit hard going in the beginning. I'm making a real effort this year to read the books that I already have in my bookcase or in my home rather than buying new ones. And all in all, Mole Flanders was quite a satisfying bookcase scraping worthy of three red stars. It's time now for another song. And this one was recommended by friend of the show Hayden Taylor. The song is called When Allah Ramallah, or We're Going to Ramallah, And it's a Palestinian folk or protest song which talks about returning to the city of Ramallah in the West Bank. Ramallah wasn't always, but it is now the de facto administrative capital of Palestine. Please enjoy this song. going to Ramallah and I hope you enjoyed it. We're almost out of time but I do have a little more for you before I sign off. You might remember that in the last episode of The End of History I played a clip recorded by fellow executive member Courtney Fraser in which Courtney talked about her journey to the Canterbury Socialist Society and some of the issues that she cares about. I'm very pleased to introduce you now to another member of the CSS executive. Here goes.
0: Kia ora, I'm Nick. I live in Limwood with my wife and my dog, and I am an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society. I first joined the CSS in 2020 after attending a local event, and I joined the executive later in that year. I'm a union delegate for my workplace, but I don't have a scholarly background, so I found the educational aspect of the society really fantastic. I'm super proud of the lectures, discussions, and, of course, radio show episodes that we've output over the last few years. The most important work that I personally do alongside our editor, Martin, is the journal The Commonwealth, for which I'm in charge of layout and production, and happy to say that we'll have our fifth issue out in May. Local community engagement is really important to me, and the fact that we've kept a friendly space for all shades of the left without any splits so far is super impressive and goes to show that Christchurch is obviously the best city in the country. So if you do come to an event, please do make sure to say hello.
1: Thanks, Nick. I really do think it's worthwhile to humanise some of the members of the Canterbury Socialist Society, so that you lovely listener, if you aren't yet familiar with us, might think about coming along to one of our events. Speaking of which... The next CSS educational event is scheduled for Wednesday the 13th of March from 6.30pm to around 830 It'll take place at Space Academy in St Asif Street and this event is our annual celebration of International Women's Day. The talk will be given by CSS member Amelia Burns and it's titled Reality Captured, Reality Imagined Politics and Gender Through the Lens of Cutie Horner in the talk, Amelia is going to survey the life and work of Hungarian born photographer Kati Horner, and she's going to explore photography as documentary, as art, and as a political tool. As with all of our educational events, this one is free, so please do come along. You can grab a pint, a cup of tea, a pizza, or some chips, and enjoy a really thoughtful talk. Also in March, I'm pleased to say that the CSS is presenting a two-part writing workshop titled Words and the World, and actually, it'll be me who'll be facilitating that workshop, or those two workshops. The dates for the workshops are Saturdays the 16th and the 23rd of March from 10.30am to 12.30pm at the St Martins Community Centre, which is just over the road from St Martins New World. Put really simply, the workshops are designed for members of the CSS, but they're open and they're going to be useful to anyone who wants to learn more about and improve their formal writing skills, especially writing skills that are related to political organisation and political communications. Over the two workshops, we're going to learn all about procedural and persuasive writing, so agenda, minutes, press releases, petitions, opinion pieces, editing and feedback, a whole lot to cover. You do not need to have any prior experience, but if you'd like more information, please do send an email to Society at gmail.com, or you can add yourself to our mailing list either online at socialistsocieties.org.nz or at one of our events. We're actually pretty organised at the moment. We've got events locked in for April and May and I'll have details of those for you in due course. On another note, I'm in the process of moving all of the episodes of The End of History across to an independent Spotify account because at the moment we're very grateful to be using an account set up for us by Plains FM. The only downside to that is we aren't able to collect our whole catalogue of episodes and we want to be able to do that. So that's just a bit of a heads up to say that in a couple of months time I'll be telling you to subscribe to a different RSS feed. In the meantime still subscribe to The End of History on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, still give us all the stars and more importantly still share the end of history as widely as you like and can. If you have any feedback about the show, again, send an email to Society at com. Think about joining the CSS or another socialist society local to you. I'll be back in about a month's time. Ka kite anu.